welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Stacia Gar, co-founder and principal analyst at Red Thread Research. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. So we, we, uh, we got a Christmas tree. Um, you know, we splurge on gifts and stuff, but not crazy. I don't know. Do you, are you a Christmas music fan? Uh, music? Yeah. Not so much. Uh, I've never put up a tree myself. It'd be kind of weird for like a dude to do it, but I saw this guy on LinkedIn. He posted about Whamageddon. Have you heard of this? Whamageddon? No. Yeah. Yeah. So like the one of those Christmas songs that's just like <clears throat> super obnoxious that they play over and over again. If you go to like a department store, it's by the band Wham. And the goal <laughs> is to make it through the month of December without hearing that song. And so it's like a challenge to yourself. Like, can you make it without hearing the Wham song? There's no. <laughs> You're talking about uh, Last Christmas by Wham. Yeah, that, that's a good one, man. It's classic. Why would you want to deny yourself? I don't know. I guess if you <laughs> hear it over and over again. That and uh, what Paul McCartney's uh, We're Having a Wonderful Christmas Time. Those are classics. When I think like, what is it? Uh, Mariah Carey has that one that's really popular. Yeah, was, we we could do without that if uh, Scott had his way. No Carey, no Mariah Carey December. No Carey um, Christmas. No Carey Christmas. There's got to be a catchy name there to be had. What do you want for Christmas? You get anything? Um, Fucking love, love of coal and shit. I think, yeah, I've heard, not heard that one before. Um, uh-huh. But uh, I think I'm going to get a pullover. <laughs> I think so that's good. Quarter zip pullover. Quarter zip pullover. That's the plan. That's uh, that's Cole's Christmas this year. What about you? I have no idea. I, I buy whatever the hell. The older you get, you buy whatever the hell you want throughout the year because people mess it up. They start buying you gifts. And you're like, oh, great. The quarter zip that I didn't want. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, do, do you guys exchange gifts? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's kind of devolved into like, <laughs> it's, it's super weird. So we will exchange like gifts of little to no value. Mm-hmm. Like, here's this thing from the dollar store. Here's something I got in the mail that I thought you would find interesting so it's like a white elephant but it's like (laughs) kind of but there might be like 50 gifts so you get to open up a bunch of shit that you you know it's like yeah okay cool like oh you got a candy bar that's super cool you know how's it going stacia good how are y'all good we're just talking about christmas gifts what what are you getting for christmas christmas or, or hanukkah or hanukkah yeah what are you getting for hanukkah this year what are you getting me for Hanukkah. What am I getting you? I'm getting you some. 
bunch of great insights. That's what I'm getting. Oh at. man, that's my uh, favorite. That's my favorite. I uh, know. Just just what you're going for this this Hanukkah and Christmas. How about you, Cole? What are you getting for Christmas? We were just talking about I think I'm getting a, a quarter zip pullover. <laughs> that's that's my big gift this year. So and uh mm-hmm. when you were joining Scott was talking about how he gets like a million little gifts, not not really anything big. Yeah, our family doesn't go big. We don't, we don't like yeah. one extravagant gift. It's lots of little things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, I think we're, we're going to, we're going to go, we, we might go big this year. I've been um, looking for a, a pony for my kids. Thankfully they won't listen to this podcast, so they don't know. Um, and I, I think we might've found one. So I might be getting my kids a pony for Christmas. Like a real alive pony pony? Like a real alive pony pony. Yeah. Oh, wow. And what you you are an equestrian, aren't you? So I guess that's not that yeah. random. It would be much more random if I was buying my kids a pony, but I guess it wouldn't be for you. Yeah, it's not it's not random. They are they are expecting a pony at some point. The question is when. Do you own horses? And yes, they recognize like all the privilege that goes into that statement that my children are expecting a pony. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You got a high high cost lifestyle currently. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's. It's a it's a little rough around here right now. <laughs> anyway, do you have do you have like horses and stables and stuff? Like what what does that entail? Yeah, I have a horse. Um, she's boarded at a at a stable, mm-hmm. twenty minutes away. Yeah, and so she she hangs out in a pasture. She's like totally cool if I never show up and pretends to be happy when I do. So you know, it's it's a good relationship. <laughs> is it is it a riding horse? Yeah, yeah, I've had her for 19 years. Oh, so. okay, getting up there. Yeah, so she's she's my first child. How old do horses live? Like an old horse is 30, so oh, okay. I've probably gotten another 10 years with with good luck with her. So yeah, I was thinking they were like dogs. I was like, oh man, must be getting kind of old, but no, it's like middle aged. Yeah, she's like middle aged. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anytime i have like interesting guests on here i realize like how ignorant i am about so many things like, i know nothing about anything but uh well how, how many how many hands is this horse <laughs> yeah good there you go there you go she's she's 14 one so 14 one that's 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 right where i thought that's right what i thought <laughs> <clears throat> does does she have a bit uh, I do often ride her. Yeah, horse. we're we're like there reaching the limits of my horse knowledge now, right? <laughs> do you ever shoe her? I do not shoe her. She oh. is barefoot. Mm. So, mm. <laughs> but she uh, she she's a registered quarter horse, um, and she is got a star and a sniff on her nose. So now now we're getting beyond. Wait wait, I, what's I that? What, what's, 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 yeah, what's what is it? Yeah. It's like little the markings, like the little white markings on them. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Kind so, like a beauty mark, sort of. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, helps you understand, see, tell which horse is yours. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so. See, yeah. and I'd heard the term 14 hands, but it was when I was buying wine. It was like a brand called 14 Hands. Oh. And it has a horse on the front of it, but I had no idea that that was a horse related term. So a hand is how you measure a horse. It's four inches. Like if you think about not probably my hand, but maybe your hand uh, Mm -hmm. this way. And so when, you know, 
before they had kind of proper measurement, they would use hands to determine one hand on top of the other, up to the horse's withers, which is where its neck enters its body, uh, how tall a horse was. And it so 14 makes good hands, sense, right? Makes good sense, right? But 14 <laughs> hands is no is remarkable because technically that is the difference between a pony and a horse from a size perspective. There's mm. other things that go into that, like breed, etc. I won't bore you. I've ridden horses since I was five. So I've and as my as my children say, they're like, Mama, you know everything. I'm like, I don't, but I know a lot. Um, but uh but that is the difference in in size, and so that might be why the line was fourteen hands, because it was like denoting this like moment of transition with the horse. Interesting. When I love it, this, this is an analytics podcast, and I think now we've officially covered every unit of analysis. We've now got the hand. <laughs> we've covered stones before. I remember we covered that once a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, with, with the horses, you're also talking like furlongs. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. For racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you know what a furlong is. I've been to a lot of horse races. So, yeah. The seven betting furlong race. Away, that's a good, good race. What? I said betting your money away. Yeah. You know, pissing it away like like I'm known to do. <laughs> Going to like the show ring at the horse track is like the best thing ever. Like you just oh, like yeah. d- divine some sort of insight into who's going to win by essential subjective <laughs> assessment there like, yeah mm. looking at him. oh mm. your name is like smoky joe i like i like the cut of your jib yes yeah. <laughs> two dollars so my, so my horse's name is actually smoking haley oh uh, there you go so you know it's a anything with smoking it's got to be good Oh, absolutely. My, my mom and my grandmother always bet on gray horses. They think they're faster. I'm like, I'm pretty sure color doesn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. No, color anyway. is well, subjective. Like, all situation. It was good. Um, Got to see you for the first time in person at PSYOP this year. And I think that was your first PSYOP. What was that like for you? I was my first PSYOP. Um, it was interesting. You know, it's... um, I'm, I was uh, reflecting on on a, a post from um, uh, somebody in our network who was talking about how you know people analytics people are often introverted and kind of more comfortable with numbers, and um, and I often don't feel that way when I go to conferences because at this point I've been in the space for you know close to twenty years and I know a lot of people and blah blah blah, but I went to PSYOP and I felt introverted. <laughs> No, nearly. I mean, I knew plenty of people uh, and had people I wanted to meet, but it was it was a good reminder of like what a lot of other people feel like going to conferences because you go and you're like, well, there's a lot of people who know each other and I know very few of you, Um, which was which was a good experience. Um, It was also a good experience just to kind of see the more academic perspective on the side of the work that we do. Um, And and I think also there, you know one of the cool things about what i get to do is i get to take ideas from all sorts of different places and so kind of just thinking about what are the ideas that are there and how are people thinking about our space and then how do we make that more actionable and uh something that people who are actual practitioners can use in the workplace is um it's you know it's always good to be exposed to good, new ideas so that was that was cool were, were you presenting or are you just like trying to get some uh knowledge side stream knowledge I was presenting. They they actually let a non IO on the stage, <laughs> and uh, I was in. The they're they're known to do that from time to time. On occasion, they're like, "We're going to let the riffraff in." Okay, <laughs> uh, 
And so um, I I went on, I was on with um, uh, some other IOs and was really talking about like, what is it like to use data and um, and some of the tensions that come with using data in the workplace and making sure that, you know, people are using it appropriately, but then also recognizing the practical reality of, you know, you don't have some of the things that you have within, you know, a lab to to actually show what's happening. And, and sometimes you have to make trade-offs um, with, with different things. So I was talking about that. Um, there was plenty of opportunity for, you know, questions, which were, oh, <laughs> were yeah. interesting. Thing. Um, but yeah, no. So, but I had the chance to bring a, a non-IO perspective to data in the workplace. I think that's one of like the biggest misconceptions, or you know, stark realities of working with data in the workplace. That it it's definitely not like the research studies you get into, and there's always these sort of ancillary problems of you know privacy or just delivery or you know what have you that people don't necessarily yeah. talk about. They only talk about the end results and they're the outcomes as it were. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think also just the pressure, right? Like the, there are different pressures when you're doing the work in, in the workplace and, um, and you know, what, sometimes how, how so? the best how so? is, well, because well, you can have the best design study or you can have the best hypotheses, oh, yeah. but if ultimately no one's going to do anything with that information, even if you prove it, then should you do it at all? Yeah, yeah there, there's both ends. Like you could have a randomized study in a lab, but you can't randomize employees in an org. And, yeah. you know, what are you going to do with those outcomes? Are people actually going to use them? Or are they going to just, eh, I, I think I know better. It's not what yeah. I wanted anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you really got to think about what are you going to do with the results before you design your study? Um, because if the answer is no one cares, then shouldn't be doing No one that. cares. Yeah. No one cares. <laughs> well, and I actually attended the the session that, that you were at. And one of the things I thought was really intriguing, and I'd love to get your perspective working at Th Red Thread on this, is the pressure for jazzing things up for marketing purposes, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like you want to have the most impact. Like you, you guys do some fantastic research and market studies on the whole people analytics spectrum. And I'm sure you've got stuff coming out about like AI and, I mean, yeah. you, the whole gamut, like I know you've done learning technologies and stuff like that too. Um, but like, can you talk about that at all? Like the the pressures between doing really, really good and thorough research on what's going on in the market and then what you have to do on the back end to make sure it's not irrelevant? Yeah, so I think it, it's not dissimilar from an academic process, at least for us, in terms of going out there and make sure you understand what other people are saying or have said before and having a pretty high strong hypothesis about what uh one what what people care about and two what you should be testing and why uh what we do a lot of is looking for spaces where there's a lot of noise particularly a lot of marketing noise from vendors uh that makes it complicated for buyers to know what's happening so you know you mentioned ai AI is prime for that because there's a lot of people saying a lot of stuff and it's hard to know what's real and what's not. Um, same with skills, which is another topic we've spent a lot of time on. Hard to know what's real and what's not. And so we go out and we say, okay, what, what's everyone saying? And then we try to match that against what do people actually need to know to, you know, with tech, make good buying decisions or more broadly just to integrate whatever this thing is into their company. 
And then we design our research to, to look at that. But what I, what we internally say is that if this was something that showed up and no disrespect to anybody who writes for this publication, but if this showed up in Forbes, we're behind the times. Like if what we'd said yeah. as a researcher could have showed up there, then we're behind the times. And so we try very hard to be on the cutting edge of what people really care about, which requires an immense amount of reading and talking to people and then designing the study. What's a publication that you would want it to show up in that you are with the times? <laughs> well, HBR, I think. Um, okay. MIT Sloan. Um, well, I think she's <laughs> saying that she wants to be there before it is published in HBR, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She must be like, "Ah, we 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 told you three months but ago." Then, but then, if our stuff shows up in in either of those places, which it has actually, but we published in both those places in 2023. Um, you know, I'm happy with that. Uh, but if it's totally. something that would kind of be in the you know common press, not not so much. It's not our. Post. So what's 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 something you can share with us? Like what what's what's the voice of the crowd saying around uh, AI? Where's it heading? Uh, voice of the crowd is that vendors really care a lot and practitioners don't. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> to say it succinctly. Really? Um, wow. Okay. Say more about and, that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not that they, and that's a little bit of an oversimplification, of course. But it's, it, the thing is, is that vendors have not yet fully made the case for how this will actually solve the problems that HR and the business care the most about. So they've said, oh, well, you can summarize. Okay, well, what can I summarize, for instance? Um, I saw a technology this fall that is allowing you to summarize. So it's for performance reviews. And basically, you know, in some of these systems, you can mark what your performance uh, feedback was, and then it will put all of that in one place. And then the, the technology, the, the Gen AI, will summarize what was written across all these different performance reviews. And like, they, a lot of people, particularly on the tech side, were like, this is the best thing. Nobody likes to do performance reviews. <laughs> and which, no comment Which is there. true. <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. <laughs> on, the, on the HR side, you know, and, and for me as a researcher, there's the side that's like, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, like, are we going to be introducing more bias in these summaries? You know, because we know that there's all sorts of bias within the, within the models. Um, you know, or there's clip, clip, clipping out important information when in you, know, context, you aggregate. Right? Yeah. Right. Because a lot, because all it's doing is, is kind of getting at the very, you know, average part, but it may not say, Hey, this one thing that you did that this one person made comment on, like that was actually next yeah. level. Like that's you demonstrating the next capability. Um, there's an, a fascinating study that's out there that was done on um, using, maybe it wasn't a study. I think actually it was just an article, but it was on, um, the impact of using a bot versus a person for, um, kind of, uh, therapy sessions. Right. And when they found that the person and the bot said the exact same thing, if someone knew it was a bot, they discounted it, found it less valuable than if it was a person who again said the exact same thing. And when they dug into it and they found, asked why that was the case, it was because what mattered was the time, the time that somebody put in to giving you the feedback, to hearing your story, to listening. Now, translate that to performance reviews. If I think that a bot wrote my review, what, I mean, that has no value. Like you take the, the criticism that people have of performance reviews today, it gets even worse, right? But part of what can make a review valuable is I know that my manager put some thought, time, effort, 
thought into what they put together. And this really is what they think and they're trying to help me be better. So if we have a bot write that, maybe not, right? So it goes on and on and on. So the, the question is, is how does the AI, does the AI solve the real problem that exists or is it creating other problems that maybe we don't have right now? That, that's a super interesting point because I, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, this idea that I, I get very little satisfaction of using Gen AI to produce a, a doc of some sort. You produce some text and it kind of robs me of that satisfaction in creating it. Now you're looking at it through the lens of someone else like, well, you know, Stacia wrote my performance review and, uh, you know, it, it sounds very nice. It's the, the words are grammatically correct, but <laughs> there's no thought behind it. And the, the more it, I think it's gonna become more and more prevalent. Of course, people yeah. are gonna use this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing it now it, everywhere. Like the AIs have a very distinct format that they use and like mm -hmm. cadence to how they talk. And when I see it now, I even discount what's being written anywhere mm. I see it. Like I, I see people mm -hmm. that I know are generating posts like on LinkedIn that I know are AI generated. I'm like, yep, not reading that. Like it's it's just because like you didn't put any thought into it. So I, I think there's something there. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's not that HR is rejecting it by any means. I mean, everyone's interested. A lot, lots of people have a high level of interest, but I don't know that HR is convinced yet of what it, that its risks are outweighed by the benefits. Yeah. I, I think that Gen AI has to do something for you. And gr granted, writing a performance review is doing something for you. But uh, say like cascading goals from manager to manager or, you know, aggregating um, planning goals across different groups, some sort of task that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. Can we truncate that down to something, you know, within a week or so? It, it has to do something. Yeah. Can I build on I mean, that, Scott? I, I would welcome it. Yeah. Because I think like a lot of people use the analogy of like with AI, it was like when the internet was first created. And do you guys remember like when the internet was first created, everybody wanted to like create their own web page, like on like GeoCities. And there was no purpose <laughs> to the web page using that Netscape yeah. navigator, yeah. Uh -huh. and, and so it was like completely useless information. But they were just like, "Yeah, I created a web page, and that isn't that brilliant." <laughs> and it's like I feel like AI is in the same place right now. It's like, "Yeah, I used it, and it didn't do anything." It's like, "Isn't that brilliant?" I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I think mean, similarly, it will transform what we do. We just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Yep. Got to find ways to monetize, use for productivity gains, use to for real generation. But that doesn't rob us of the you know core essence of what it means to be creative, like all of that stuff. Yeah, real efficiency, mm -hmm. real performance, real productivity. Yeah. Well, what what are you seeing in the people analytics space in particular, Stacia? I mean, I know you're you're heavy in that area. Yeah. So I, there's a few things. We're actually just about to kick off our next people analytics tech studies. Um, but there, there's a few things in general that well, can I ask I about that actually yeah like do you do you dread that moment is like oh my gosh more work is coming or is that is that exciting what is that experience like well i generally like our people analytics tech vendors and so mm -hmm. it gives me a chance to see people i like so from like yes. that perspective i i like it uh it is an immense amount of work <laughs> <laughs> Um, because so Scott, for, for your and the listeners, uh, knowledge and background, we run, um, usually two surveys of vendors, which are very long. 
uh, we will do an, a, a 60 minute briefing with most vendors who participate in the study on top of that. And then we've got all the data analysis and everything, um, plus a customer survey. So it is just, it is a huge amount of work every you year. You get like a 360 of the customer life cycle here, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, and we do it every year. This year, we're actually going to make a little bit of a change where we're going to focus. We're going to move to a cadence of um, a market study, meaning what's happening more broadly in the market every year. And then a kind of features and functionality survey every other year, because things just don't change quite that fast. They changed a lot during the pandemic. And if, you know, we have another kind of event like that, we would, we would go back to it. But right now things are starting to even out a little bit. So we're going to, we're going to shift that anyway. Um, but at the end of it, we're able to say things like how fast the market grew in the previous year, what customers expectations are, how companies have changed their product roadmap, et cetera, that kind of stuff. So it's pretty interesting. Um, but back to your point or to your question, Cole, you know, some of the things that I think are the most interesting are some of the things we've been saying are coming, but we're actually starting to see them in product. Um, so we have been saying for a long time that we need to focus on different personas uh, because when we started the study in 2019, everyone was just focused on the people analytics persona and it was like maybe someone HR, an HRBT. And now we're finally starting to see clear articulation of personas across different um, you know, business leaders and managers and HR and even different people in HR, uh, as well as people in analytics. And that I think is essential for getting data-driven approaches adopted across the organization. And that is a really good and, and meaningful change. That well, what kind, of, what kind of personas or archetypes are you finding? Well, just, just like I said, so folks are focusing, focusing a lot more on senior leaders and HRBPs as, as true personas, as opposed to like, eh, we'll just give them a high-level summary and call it good, <laughs> which is what they were basically doing, which is the equivalent of like, we're just going to throw some data over the wall and say that, you know, check the box, which we all right. know doesn't really work. Um, so that that's one. The other one is um, managers themselves. So our day, our research shows that the more information that you're able to, to distribute out to managers, uh, the higher their perceived effectiveness. And so we're seeing a lot more focus on helping managers get the information they need to make better decisions. So, so that's one big change. Um, second one that we've seen is and, and continues to be is, is that the employee experience market tends to be the biggest and strongest um, of kind of all the different categories we cover within people analytics. And I know that another analyst recently said we're going to come into an EX winter, which I think is not true. Um, so our, <laughs> our data would indicate that is actually not at all going to happen. But, you know, because as you think about, you know, what's happening, even if you know, organization is laying off people or they're slower, slowing hiring due to economic uncertainty, um, they still need to retain the people who are there. And those people are going to be doing a lot more work than they were before they laid off mm. their colleagues. So it doesn't make sense that folks would back off of employee experience. In fact, we tend to see a rise in focus on EX during difficult economic times, with particularly things that are non, um, that don't require a cash uh, investment. So things like internal mobility, where you could, you know, you've already got that sitting in your organization or um, using I existing learning opportunities more effectively. We see that. So, so we do see an investment in EX during downtime. So, so, and I expect to see that to continue. That comes out of our data. Yeah. 
It's an interesting point. Like, so we, we went through a round of layoffs early this year across, you know, different industries. Now people are doing two or three different jobs. It used to be one person and they get a meets expectations at the end of the year, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, well, dang. That's what yeah, it feels like a slap in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, and we're, we're going to see, you know, what happens. I think 2024 is going to be a very challenging year not to be a, a Debbie Downer, but I think it's going to be pretty rough. And we've been, we're working on our, we're doing a trends uh, session next week. So I've been working on that and thinking a lot about next year. So rough yeah. how, rough how. Yeah. Why, why, and why, why would it be harder than this year was? Well, the majority of economists think that the, that a now hopefully mild recession will happen in Q1 and Q2. Um, whereas before it was much more evenly split. It was like 50, 50, we're now looking at around 80% of economists think that we're finally gonna go through that. So who knows? Right. But it, but you heard but it here first, we, everybody. <laughs> but what we do know is, is that, you know, executives are, uh, careful about risk. So whether it happens or not, the fact that that's the signal out there means that, you know, CFOs are, I mean, in all the all the vendors and all the practitioner companies we talk to, everyone is turning things tight right now. So that's going to have all sorts of downstream effects, certainly within uh, in terms of the people in the organization, but also HR significantly, right? And not like HR wasn't already burned out enough as it was before this. So so that's one thing. Um, second thing is you know we're continuing to see significant geopolitical conflict, and you know that has implications on organizations. Um, it was interesting for the for this research uh, uh, session we're doing next week. I went looking like for data on the impact of war on businesses, and it's like no one is doing this this research. They'll talk about like, oh, well, the, the U.S. government has spent this much on you know whatever, or or this is how it has impacted like a, a general you know area like the EU. Mm -hmm. But no one is like, hey. When and I know we're not we're not being political, so I'm just gonna say this is a thing. When one country attacks another country, and you have workers in both of those countries, what do you do? What yeah. as an HR leader, what do you do, and what is the impact on your organization's productivity? Yeah, no one's do you doing work that for research. Do you work for Raytheon? I guess the first question. <laughs> oh my god! No, no. I mean, think about you know with Ukraine and Russia. How much tech stuff is out of Ukraine and Russia? I mean, here in in Silicon Valley, that was the whole thing. Is is we got all the we had Ukrainian employees or workers in Russia. Or, I mean, yeah, or Ukrainian Israel, workers, yeah, or Israel, guy. yeah, right. So, so like, what do you do? And that has that impact HR. You know, no matter what your perspective is, that impacts HR. Um, so that's another thing. Um, the other one of the others is power struggle, right? We're seeing a massive power struggle between um, senior executives and the rest of the organization. So yeah. return to office, you know, is is uh, one potential thing, but also labor, right? We have not seen such support of labor unions since the 1960s, and we are not just seeing it in you know, with the car manufacturers where they just won all sorts of big concessions, but we're seeing it in Starbucks and Microsoft and all of these companies that you would traditionally not think of having unions. And they are, uh, which 
there's plenty more to say about that. But the point is, is HR is going to have to deal with that as well. So we did, and you know, we there's a few other things too that we're going to talk about in the webinar. But at the high level, I think that's going to make this year more difficult for for folks. And then you layer on what will undoubtedly be a um, contentious election this fall in the yeah. United States, and that's going to raise tensions too. Well, you mentioned a oh, webinar. So again, not you, to be a Debbie Downer. No, no, no. This, this is actually really important stuff. Um, you, you mentioned a webinar, though. Do you have like a link to it that we could put in the show notes that people could go do some more research if they wanted to? Yeah, so we're actually, this is an internal webinar for our members only. So folks oh, could join okay. the membership to do that. But we will be doing a public version of it in January, which I can share with you. Okay. Yeah, we, we can do that then. Well, I, I did have one question um, that I think that you were kind of uniquely positioned to answer, and you may not even have an answer to it, but you research a lot in like what the future of HR technology looks like. Is there a future HR technology that you don't see that exists that you think would be truly transformative and somebody needs to go build it? Like, what would that be? So we're talking a lot about broadly AI and its in impact on, you know, augmentation of workers and automation. We're also seeing a lot of talk about skills. What are people's skills and, you know, what skills do they use in a given job? I don't see anything that is bringing that together, right? So mm -hmm. like if I have X skills and such and such technology can either augment what I'm doing or automate, take away some of that, what is then the work that I, how does the work that I do look different? And what is the work that should come on my plate that has to replace the work that just came off my plate? How do I think about work design, skill capability, and what the future organization should look like, mm -hmm. given those things? And so it's like a skills yeah. operation manager or operations management tool or something. Am I? But it's not just skills because because you also have to take into account um, the job and the context in which someone is working and mm -hmm. the uh, types of you know relationships that they have. So it's, it, I would be hesitant to say it's just skills because I'm sure plenty of people who listen to this will try to say no, 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 no. We do that, and I'm saying it's not just that. Um, Got but it. if you do do that, reach out to us because we're doing a skills tech study right now. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go I'll go one step ahead of you. The automation yeah. of job analysis to understand the knowledge, skills, abilities, and how they fit into the organizational structure such that you can hire the right people, uh, reward them in the right way, and uh, you know keep them engaged, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in an automated fashion because everything changes so quickly. Yeah. yeah, so I actually saw a technology yesterday that does a lot of that, Scott. But what really? it doesn't, yeah, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't bring in the knowledge of what can be augmented or automated into that analysis, um, yeah. which I think is, is part of the missing link. But to your point, Scott, that's the only tech I've seen. And I see a lot of tech, and that's the only one I've seen that does that. Well, this is like, I mean, it's a broader discussion around what is AI, et cetera, and the, the limitations of it. It just, it, it's only as good as this training data. And this is where like the humans can have uh, real-time information and uh, anecdotes and, you know, spot differences that AI can't. Um, yeah. Yeah. But well, to your point, I, it's more powerful if it's automated, right? If it's, if oh, it's absolutely. Not just, yeah. Yeah, and I saw Richard Landers gave a um, PSYOP LEC talk on that topic. I got to watch the video of it yesterday. It was really good. 
and I can put a link to that. I think it's on YouTube. Um, but do you want to join us in the confusion matrix, um, Stacia? Sure. Let's do it. The confusion matrix. Are you ready to be confused? Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a uh, little research roulette. How about that? Okay, Stacia, your job is simple. We got three articles. One of them is real. Your job is to identify the real article, okay? Okay. And if, if you win, Cole is going to send you a personalized email with a <laughs> social media tile that you can share on LinkedIn or any other social media of your Lucky choice. you. Or, for, or frame it. What, what have you? What have you? Whatever makes Whatever my Whatever you uh, like. <laughs> and uh, if, if you lose, like the kids will probably get like a 13-hand pony as opposed to a 14. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Uh, these are all animal-based. Number one, uh, the title of this article is Even Chickens Prefer Beautiful People. This is from the Journal of Avian Behavioral Studies from Stockholm University. Uh, article number two, the aesthetics of, and pardon me, the aesthetics of taste. Do goldfish appreciate classical music? International Journal of Aquatic Animals from Tufts University. Or three, understanding art through the eyes of a pigeon. Journal of Art Appreciation from New York University. So you got uh, chickens preferring beautiful people, the aesthetics of taste, do goldfish appreciate classical music, and understanding art through the eyes of a, of a pigeon. All right. So here, here's my thinking. Am I supposed to explain my thinking? Can I do that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So so on pigeons, I love there's the pigeons. all sorts of... <laughs> there, there's it. all sorts of re research right about how people who have grown up perceiving themselves or being perceived as more attractive can have more confidence and kind of exude other things that are not directly related to beauty so there's possibility that we got a little correlation going on there between okay. beauty and attractiveness and energy that the pigeons could like so i'm gonna go with that's a solid maybe true um, okay on the next one, which was the, the goldfish, right? Um, there's a lot, there's a resurgence in research on goldfish, guys. You probably haven't seen it, but there's- You, you, are, like... you are so cutting edge. I mean, I love this. <laughs> Better not be <laughs> This is the, this, so this there, is what you get it. <laughs> this is what you get when someone who wanders around the internet- We do people, we do goldfish. All right, so 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 <laughs> goldfish—they've been able to show that it actually do—they do not have short memories. They've been able. There was an article recently on how a goldfish—they put it in a in a tank and it was on wheels, and then they could put something that they thought the goldfish would want in something it wouldn't, and it would actually by pushing against the glass would push the tank to the right place. So, oh my god! I, so you can I'm, like navigate a tank around like a laboratory or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm going to have to find this article for you guys to put it in the notes afterwards. So I'm going to say goldfish are real, which leaves us with the last one of art, pigeon or art. And uh, even chickens prefer beautiful people. No, no, no. That was number one. I was I was pro chickens. The You're pro chickens. One. The last one is understanding art to the eyes of a pigeon. Yeah, I'm going to go with that's false. Like, I don't, I don't know. So I, can't, I can't find two. some justification. Oh, two are false. Two are false. All right, so definitely pigeons. Uh, it's like two lies that, and a truth. All right, I believe in the goldfish. So let's let's get rid of my hypothesis on the chickens. And you believe the in the goldfish. Yep. What's the answer? Cole, Cole, I like the pigeons one. 
You like the pigeons one. You like pigeons? Yeah. You, I you just seem so weird and, and implausible that it's got to be plausible. Okay, y'all ready? Yep. Here we go. It's actually the chickens. Chickens prefer beautiful people. Those darn chickens with their so, attractiveness bias. Uh, I read this earlier this week, but apparently they uh, train chickens to uh, respond to a uh, average-looking woman's face, and then uh, did some sort of experimental design to. You know, they, they prefer the more attractive people, and they say it uh, questions uh, the evolution of uh, perception of beauty. You know, this sort of thing. Okay. All right. Well, we were both wrong, Cole. So <laughs> everyone feels shame. Everyone feels shame. Do oh, the I don't chickens feel, I, I feel like I had a good egg? hypothesis there. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, the, the little Easter eggs, little colorful. Yeah. They, they, they got the spotted nose like the horse. <laughs> All right, well, let's do some nerdery. How about that? Let's do some nerdery. The nerdery. This article provides some guidance on uh, how to enhance your performance. So they offer three general suggestions. So one is look at it frequently. So essentially look at your calendar and find uh, pinch points in the future. Get a sense of what's coming down the pipe, this sort of thing. Uh, clarify constancy constantly so look at your email and task and decide if things should be uh deleted or you know uh, uh archived or you know perhaps a short response should be made and also be content and just understand that you will never finish everything on your plate and there's always going to be something tomorrow uh so this is really designed to get more done with less stress with an emphasis on not seeking perfection but just keep on moving I remember actually learning about this from my first boss and uh, well, I guess my, it was my second boss, my second job. And they talked about <clears throat> one of the things, especially they were talking about email and this article talks about the email aspect mm -hmm. of it is you're just going to have to get comfortable that you're never done with email. Yeah. Like, it's always going to keep coming. There's always going to be more. You may get that <laughs> inbox down to zero, which, you know, more power to you if you're able ever able to do that. I'm not, but there, there's also not power in having 400,000 unread emails either, but like it's, it's always going to keep coming, you know, and that could be the same. It could be true for Slack or text messages or whatever kind of medium of communication you use. The multiple channels is a real pain. Cole can attest that I'm very comfortable with not responding to personal email anyway. For work, for work I strive for no scroll inbox. So you know, have so few emails that you don't have to scroll up and down. Yeah, that's a, a lofty goal, but not often achieved. What's your email hack, Stacia? Or do you have one? Are you 400,000 unread emails? Are you that kind of person? <laughs> I, I got 21,000 unread emails. So, oh, my you know. Lord. But the oh thing, so here's the thing. I Here's a book for you guys. 4,000 weeks. And... It's, it's 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And basically what the whole thesis of that book is, is that we have been told that we need to be so productive and do all these things. And we put all this false stress on ourselves. And like, really? Does it matter? Nah. So yeah. if you look at the, book, at the article that you guys shared, the, the two things I would agree with is like, figure out your big picture. 
Like, what is it you're actually trying to do? So like the one or two things that you're trying to do. And then second, realize that you're never going to be done. And just be somewhat okay with that. Um, to answer your question directly, Cole, I do have email hacks. I, things go into certain folders. Um, you know, if it's really not that necessary, it go, that's part of the reason that I've got 20,000. It's not that I've got 20,000 in my main section. It's that I've got 20,000 filed away in some folder and whether or not I need to see it. Eh. But, but so that, that's part of it. I also have an assistant who helps me go through my email um, and make sure that I respond to things, you know, things like, hey, Stacia, what you want to talk about on the podcast this week? <laughs> Which can be more yeah. or less effective. Uh, and so, so I think, you know, the thing is, is figure out how you can have the things that are truly the highest priority and align to your biggest priorities and make sure you get there. And then everything else is going to be noise. And we just going to be okay with that vibes of uh what's what's the quadrant system important and urgent you know and you, you try and bucket everything in your life or you know all the tasks anyway into one of these quadrants from do it now to you know delegate etc yeah yeah the stephen covey urgent versus important mm -hmm. yeah yeah Sounds for smart sure to me. do, do I mean, multiple like folders work for you like i mean i i have oh, one yeah. folder especially archive like everything goes in there. No, no, no. So like, for instance, because I have a podcast, that was actually part of the problem, Cole. Oh, kept, kept going really? into my podcast. Yeah, my podcast folder. So anything that comes in this podcast goes there. Uh, and so I don't always look at it of when we record. Anyway, um, yeah, our podcast is called Workplace Stories by Red Thread Research. Um, but so what happens, though, is when I'm ready to like think about a topic, then I go there. I'm like, okay, I am ready from a time blocking because I a crazy time blocker, which is why Calendly actually doesn't work very well for me because there's literally no space on my calendar. Um, mm -hmm. So, Because I'm always making a trade-off between, am I going to talk to this person? Am I going to allow this meeting on my calendar versus the work time that I've blocked to get done? I find that if you have your calendar wide open, you just think it's wide open and you let other people take priority. I own my calendar and mm -hmm. I give time away. And I think about it that way. Anyway, not to get on that particular soapbox. <laughs> no, let's get on the soapbox. That's the whole point of why, why we do these nerdy things. <laughs> yeah, no, I have very strong opinions on time time usage. It sounds um, like you've been burned. You've been burned. No. Like, I, no, I have some I, thoughts about Calendly, too, just, just to put it out there. Yeah. When I've, I've set out links to people to, like, book time with me, what will happen is, like, literally every minute of every day will be booked up with people from Calendly. I'm like, oh, I got geez, like, can you guys give me a break? And so then you start, like, trying to block out time, but it can just take over your life. And so I, I, I totally jive with what you're saying, Stacia, about you've got to own your, your calendar, your life, because otherwise people will, like, take over for you take back your yeah. day yeah. yeah you have to you have to own your day i i make the i make with every meeting i accept including this one Cole. i i make a decision like is this the thing i would rather be doing than writing research than seeing my kids like those are the two things mm -hmm. that i trade off against all the time and usually i don't take any calls on fridays like it's a hard rule but special exception for cole but <laughs> That's really sweet. I'm, but now I'm wondering, are you regretting it? <laughs> no, I listen to enough podcasts to know it'd be fun. <laughs> let, let, let's do this next nerdy one. Actually, I came across this article a while back, Stacia, but I saved it for you because I thought it would be a really interesting one 
about startup founder personalities. Um, so this is from Nature, and this is a yeah, I think I think it's Nature or maybe Scientific Reports, some some really big journal. It's Nature. Um, it is Nature, yeah. And what they these researchers, I don't know where they came across this data set, but they got a data set of twenty one thousand startups and their founders' big five personality traits. And that what they found is there's actually six different profiles or types of what makes a good startup founder. But in general, that, that they, they value variety, novelty, and, and starting new things, obviously, with like openness to adventure, um, being the center of attention, and they have lower levels of modesty, and being exuberant, so higher activity levels. And so I thought this was fascinating because one of my theories that I've had on this, and I've actually just coincidentally had quite a few folks reach out to me over the last few weeks about like, how can you assess startup founder personality and this type of thing? And I always say, look at the tails, <clears throat> right? Most of the time with personality, you're wanting somebody who's kind of well-adjusted, just maybe high, maybe low, depending on what, what kind of factor you're looking for. But with startups, you need, you know, some four sigma, some six sigma individuals on some of these kind of characteristics. And I, I would, I'm curious if you, what your experience has been like, because I'm sure you talk to a lot of these folks, Stacia. Yeah, for sure. So it's actually the data set's super interesting, Cole. I went, I read the whole thing. Um, and it's uh, a combination of Crunchbase and then cross-reference to their Twitter commentary. So it's their personalities mm -hmm. as represented on Twitter. Um, but that's okay. how they made the connection. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it was really, I mean, just methodologically, like, good job thinking about that one. <laughs> yeah, um, no kidding. So I think, you know, that's, I mean, I, you know, I started a company. <laughs> and, you know, I would say from personal experience reading that, I was like, yeah, that's probably fair. You know, like, I get bored easily and, and want to do something else. And, you know, and there's always something new to do with your own company. Um, because you can there's always something to be done because <laughs> there's never enough people and resources and money. Um, but in terms of, you know, seeing a lot of the startups that I see come through, I think, I think that it holds true because effectively you have to have an idea and an appetite for adventure to go make that idea be a thing. And you also have to have a somewhat un unreasonable uh, level of risk tolerance because, you know, more than 50% of startups fail, you know, I think in that same article, it said that only 30% make it past seven years. Um, so you have to be willing to bet on yourself that you're going to beat the odds. And that takes a certain, you know, again, I think it was expressed as, um, you know, desire, desire for attention or whatever it was, but you, you just have to think you're good enough to make it. And I think that's true. It, it really resonated with me in terms of what they found. What do you think about this one, Scott? Uh, well, first it raised questions around toxoplasmosis, which we know <laughs> is associated with entrepreneurial spirit. As one does. As one does. Uh, we can cover that later. Uh, but I, what I found most interesting, and this resonates with me, is that the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones with the diverse team around them. So mm -hmm. yes, yeah. you can be optimistic, you can be impulsive, you can have great ideas, but you need the balance. You need 
either you're a very strong uh, optimistic and you know adventurous sort of person and you need a technical balance or you're very heavy in the technical and you need like so the salesperson with you if you ever have you ever watched uh the show i think it's called the food that built america Mm-mm. it's on no. the history channel but there are all these companies they're almost always based on two or more people getting together it's never just like one lone person and one person is always like this salesperson like let's take this idea let's run let's sell it it's like the other person's like whoa our quality is not there yet on the other hand you got the the balance once again the person's like well we're gonna r&d this to the nth degree another person's like no we got to make some money now so it's always a balance you got to have mm-hmm. a glue guy. Yeah. You got to have somebody that sticks it together. <laughs> there, there's lots of parallels for this podcast. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway. But it's really about the toxoplasmosis. That's, that's what I know. Yeah. Betting on yourself, risk-taking behaviors, sniffing cat urine, you know, all of the good stuff. E- eating all the things. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, do you want to cover the last one? Last one, absolutely. So, uh, how would you describe your uh, sleep quality, Stacia? Oh, very poorly. Uh, <laughs> <she went on laughs> Sorry, what was that? Oh, we're leaving that in too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll leave. <laughs> but for everyone that isn't watching, Stacia just immediately hit mute as soon as I started talking here. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let it slide. We see how it is, Stacia. I mean, that's because I'm working from home and somebody walked across the back and I didn't want you to happen. Oh, it's always about distraction. <laughs> distraction. Beautiful timing. But uh, apparently living on the wrong side of a time zone can impact how oh. much sleep you actually get. So people on the western part of the time zone, the sun goes down earlier, uh, pardon me, uh, later than on the eastern side. In fact, it's about an hour difference. So like the sun were to go down uh, on the eastern side about 730, western side about 830. And this leads to um, when it goes dark, uh, your brain releases melatonin. And people on the east side of the time zone get about 19 more minutes of sleep per night so what does this mean so people on the western side they get they're less likely to get six hours sleep less likely to get eight hours total sleep uh more likely to be obese more likely to be overweight more likely to have a heart attack and they're less productive overall so it's pretty crazy do you do you think this one's real so oh absolutely absolutely Mm -hmm. well so here here's here is my thought um there's a lot of other research that goes into saying that the impact of lights have completely disrupted our connect our like circadian rhythm to nature. And so basically, yeah, it might get darker, but we have so many lights, particularly in our homes, that we don't really notice. So I was reading it, I was like, yeah, I can see this, but I'm not sure I, I think this is what's really causing it. Yeah, I mean, like, if you like pluck people out like the 1700s where, you know, everyone's like candlelight. But I, I think that that right. still exists, right? Like yeah. it's. I don't know. I, so, well, so I'm, I'm I from Arizona originally, and we have no time. We have no time to yeah. change, which was like blew my mind. Literally, I've told this story before. But when I was went to college as a freshman, and they're like, "Oh, the time's going to change tonight. It's going to drop back." And I was like, "What are you talking about? Like, is this I've like some freshman prank?" No, I'd never, you can tell where I started. I'd never been out of Arizona during the time change and I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. So, so I have kind of a funny relationship with time anyway. 
But I, I, I mean, maybe this is maybe this is true, but it could also be something else, right? And this is this is why I'm yeah. a researcher because I'm always like asking questions, like, is that really right? But well, you could also you could also divide the country in north and south as well. Like the sun goes down much earlier in the north, so if you combine these two things, it, it makes perfect sense. The Earth is rotating, and you have the time zone. Everyone's in that same time zone on the eastern side. Mm -hmm. The sun's gonna is naturally gonna get darker before. Yeah, the effect of the curvature of the Earth is real. Like in the north, uh, northern hemisphere versus southern, or whatever. I'm probably not saying that right, but I actually watched a video this week about the international dateline. Apparently, yeah. mm -hmm. that thing zigzags like crazy, and there's some areas they're like six hour, like little island chains on the middle of the Pacific mm -hmm. Ocean that are like what would be in a normal time zone, like six hours away but they're in yesterday because of the international dateline. It really screws up their ability to work in other places because oh, gotcha. of such vast, you know, zigzags of the international dateline. So I, I think that this mm -hmm. is absolutely true. Maybe it's not within the hour, but if you went like a two full, or like two hours or three hours difference from everybody else, that's gotta be a huge difference. I mean, the, the data is really compelling to me. Go on. Wouldn't you expect, Scott, to your point, that, that you would see the same thing the farther north you get in the country? Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. I'm just the, saying that the they, they haven't, they, just, they didn't cut it that way. Yeah. Okay. I bet you you would. Though. I don't know. One, like, one of my favorite uh, natural experiment studies is on uh, the date change day, the day after, mm -hmm. and they found more cyber loafing on that day and, you know, more car accidents, more of this sort of thing because yeah. people lose an hour of sleep. Hell, yeah. like I, I think yeah. we, we talk so much in organizations about like wellness and like go to the meditation tent and all this sort of shit. But, you know, one thing that would be like no cost to the organization would be to, hey, get better sleep everybody rest up see you tomorrow morning yeah no kidding i remember i lived in chicago for a little while and i i never realized because i'd always lived in the kind of the southern part of the united states and in the month of january the days were so much shorter i would leave for work and the sun would still not be up yet and when i would left work at the end of the day the sun had already gone down so i didn't see the sun for like a month welcome and to seattle that was yeah. extremely depressing and so i was like i can't handle this and so i always tell people chicago's like a really cool city i enjoyed living there but i had to move back to texas because i couldn't handle just the month of january it was just so brutal not to mention it was cold and windy but yeah it was it was rough the summertime you get the exact opposite where the sun will come up at like 4 30 in the morning go to go down about 9 30. yeah summer's insane awesome up there it was so awesome um yeah. but anyway well i think we've hit that point in the conversation um so stacia it was amazing having you join us today and i've been looking forward to this for a while and i appreciate you taking time on your friday because since apparently <laughs> that's like a sacred day so thank you for for joining this with us but before i give you the final word uh scott any parting words for stacia uh stacia a uh, pleasure to meet you hope to see you at psyop next year yeah it's great to meet you too scott and yeah. thank you cole I've been awesome. looking forward to it as well. Cool. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Stacia Gar. Thanks, Stacia. Thank you. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.